The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Happy Monday. Let's talk about despair. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, really uh, happy to be uh, with you this morning to uh, continue the series. We have three left uh, in this series on uh, sound judgment, thinking biblically about the disciplines of mind and heart. And today I do want to talk about the issues of despair and discouragement uh, and hopefully provide you a little encouragement before it's all over. Um, and before we do that, uh, I would like to pray quickly. Father in heaven, we thank you for the days that you give us. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for these students, for your sovereign care in their lives, for the things you have brought them through, for the blessings they've enjoyed, for the challenges they've faced, for all the various circumstances of their lives. We are reminded to give you thanks. We're also mindful, Father, to ask you to be with us this morning to give us grace and wisdom to attune our minds and hearts to your word that we may be challenged to think biblically about the way we think and feel in the midst of life's circumstances. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I do want to talk about this issue of discouragement and despair and provide you with some practical <clears throat> thinking. At the beginning of the semester, we talked about, in Romans 12, the issue of sound judgment, what it means to exercise sound judgment, that we don't need to be uh, enslaved to our emotional reactions to our circumstances, that God gives us the ability and places upon us the expectation to bring some discipline to bear on the way we think and feel. Last time we were together, we talked about the issue of anger and looked at the wisdom from the book of James that encouraged us to pause, to be slow to speak and slow to anger, quick to listen, <clears throat> to not hold grudges, to back up and to think a little bit before we react, and we talked about the practical realities of that. Today I want to talk about this issue of despair and discouragement. Why? Well, the reason is simply this. It's a practical reality of life in this world. <clears throat> if you uh, are a human being, or you know other human beings, you know people who are struggling with discouragement and despair. Uh, this is the harsh reality of life. In fact, when I think about <clears throat> all of the things that are going on in the world around us, there are lots of different reactions that I'd love to take time to think about. The issues of anxiety and fear, we'll touch on those a little bit later. We've already talked about the issue of anger. I want to talk about the issue of withdrawal and apathy and disconnecting as well. But when I look at the world around us and I think about the issues that you're struggling with as students and what we struggle with as human beings in this world and what I see going on in the church around these issues, we are not free from the, the struggle with the issues of discouragement and despair. <clears throat> Look, this is a harsh reality. Life is not easy. Surprise. We all know this. Even if you think your life is easy, you have to admit a lot of people's lives are not. And still, I think in this world, most of us expect that it will be or should be easy. And that's just not reality. <clears throat> so we need to think about this and think about it biblically. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning of this series, I want you to <clears throat> bear with me and to be careful. Uh, some of what I want to share in the series, as we've already done, is strong medicine. And I do not want you to take it wrongly. I do not want you to hear 
criticism. I do not want you to, to overreact, but I do want you to think on the things that we need to discuss. And in this one, it's particularly delicate because some of you in the room are not just feeling discouraged and not dealing with feelings of despair in the moment, but you're struggling with the harsh realities of unrelenting depression. I understand that. In fact, when I think about you as a student body, the same way I think about the church at large or the culture in which we live, this is the way we should be thinking about this. This is reality. Life presents us with challenges, with suffering, with disappointments, and often they bear down on us in a way that we lose our joy and we struggle with feeling discouraged, disappointed, despairing, even depressed. And here it is, we all deal with it differently. You have different experiences. Some of you, uh, some of you lived a life where, where uh, when you were a kid coming up, the last thing on your mind was something that was discouraging or, or that would lead you to despair or being downtrodden, or let alone depressed. Your experiences were happy ones and, and you, you don't have a great recollection of challenges piling up. For others of you, it may be all you've known. Are this constant, constant set of frustrations and sufferings and struggles. We have different ways of dealing with that. We have different experiences. You know this if you have any friends who are different from yourself. We have different dispositions. Some of you push into a challenge and respond to something that might be discouraging in a way that you see it as, 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 as an opponent that you want to spar with and wrestle with and fight and defeat others of you want to sit down and have a conversation with it. Others of you want to run the other direction. We all have different dispositions when it comes to things that will discourage us or lead us to despair. And it's safe to say that even in a school that, that places Christ and the Scripture at the center, we have different views on it. How should a Christian respond to it? Should we simply just pretend that all of the despair and discouragement in this world is a lie of the devil and we should just convince ourselves that everything's all right? Is that sound theology and an outlook or a worldview? Is it one that we should see ourselves as being completely enchained? Life is hard. You suffer, then you die. Get used to it. Or somewhere in between. There are many different views that you have, some of which are shaped by your experiences and more by your experiences than by your theology. We have varying thresholds. You know this. Some of you have friends who get discouraged very easily, like walking into the dining hall and seeing that there are no chicken patties. Woe is me, the trials of Job. Right? <laughs> Others of you know that some of you bear up under what seems to be an inordinate amount of struggle and strain and suffering with little sign of cracking or feeling weakened by it. We have different dispositions, different thresholds, different physiological realities. Some of you are dealing with physiological genetic realities that predispose you to certain kinds of emotional patterns. You have different social structures and support. Some of you are in, in friend groups that are supportive. Others of you are in friend groups that are critical. Some of you are in friend groups that are only interested in superficial things. Others of you are in friend groups that simply want to intellectualize these things. Some of you have supportive family structures. Some of you have unsupportive family structures. Some of you are in church where you are encouraged, and some of you are not in church, and so you're missing the benefit of the body. This is the reality of the room in which we're sitting. All of us have these differences. We come to this issue with different experiences, outlooks, dispositions, and makeups. 
I was thinking about this. Not to anthropomorphize despair and discouragement, but discouragement and despair are casual acquaintances for some of us, old friends for others of us, and dysfunctional codependent enablers for still others of us. And unfortunately for some of us, even in this room, there are mortal enemies that drag us down and strip us bare of joy and hope and life. So how ought we think about these things then? Biblically, of course. Look, the fruitful disciplines of mind and heart that can lift us from despair and discouragement are not beyond our reach, not beyond divine enablement, not beyond the love and care of Jesus Christ and the Spirit that indwells us. If we believe otherwise, we've been lied to and bought into a deceit. And I think that that other way of thinking about it is an interesting one. For some of us, these things are just casual acquaintances. Every once in a while, we bump into them. For some of you, they're old friends that you take great comfort in. And for others of you, they are dysfunctional, codependent enablers. It became your identity. You carry it around and you wear it, and it just enables you to sink further and further. And then the harsh reality is that some of us are sitting here in the room for whom these things are mortal enemies that have us by the ankles and pull us down where we feel completely helpless and unable to overcome it. I want you to listen to me this morning, regardless of which of those categories you might fall into, and hear what there is for you from the Scripture. Because some of you will have to make different decisions. Some of you will have to tune up and tune in and face the realities of life. Some of you will have to bring more discipline to bear, and others of you will have to go get help soon. Regardless of which of those categories you fall into, there is something for all of us in the Scripture. And there are many practical approaches that I could cover in a morning like this, ranging from prayer and support and accountability to seeking counsel and counseling. But there's one example of a discipline of mind and heart that has been rattling around in my head for some time. And I've been waiting for an opportunity to share it with you because I think it's right there in the pages of the Bible, and yet too often we do not avail ourselves of it. One of the examples of a discipline of mind and heart that we see in Scripture is that of calling to mind eternal truths about God, about ourselves, and about the world in which we live. In other words, we preach to ourselves. We preach to ourselves. Dean Porcello read this passage from Lamentations from which the university verse and the university hymn are derived. And like the prophet in Lamentations, we can cry out in honest grief and misery, expressing our pain and anguish and disappointment. But then, we call to mind the goodness, kindness, and ceaseless love of God, because in Him alone is our portion and our hope. This is an important reality for us to remember, regardless of which of the categories you fall into, regardless of whether you're whistling through the graveyard and pretending that there is no such thing as despair and discouragement in your life. You will not let it happen, no matter how much is going on around you. You're just denying the reality of it to having a casual acquaintance or seeing it as an old friend or being completely ensnared by it and battling with it every day. This is the reality of Scripture. We are to preach to ourselves 
The prophet in Lamentations, the verses that were read, is interesting, isn't it? Think about the depth of his despair. The nation continues to to fall and to fail. The people of God continue to turn their back. The judgments of God have been pronounced. And he has personal anguish and personal travails on top of that. This man's suffering and anguish is real. It is not imagined and it is not monolithic. It's not a single dimension. He's concerned for the state of the nation that is claiming to serve the God that he serves. He's concerned about the judgment that will befall them and his loved ones. And he's struggling with his own personal issues. Look at what he says. It's powerful language. God has walled me in about. I cannot escape. I'm wearing heavy chains. And though I call and cry for help, I'm shut out. There's no answer. My ways have been blocked with blocks of stone, not veils of silk. They're too heavy for me to move. They're too large for me to get over. They're too broad for me to get around. My ways have been blocked and my path has been made crooked trying to find my way through this hardship. I'm dealing with things that are laying in the tall grass waiting to catch me. Waiting to make my life harder and worse, even as bad as it is. And then I love this. The arrows have been driven into my kidneys. I've never said that. Never in my darkest moment have I said, it's like arrows being driven into my kidneys. I've said it's like stubbing your toe or stepping on one of your kid's Legos in the middle of the night. I've said those things. It hurts. Arrows driven into my kidneys. Drove them deep into me in the most painful parts. And then look at verse 14 we read. I've become a laughing stock. It's not just my pain. I'm being mocked. I'm a laughing stock of everyone. I'm the object of taunts all day long. I have no more self-respect, no more dignity, no more physical comfort, no way clear of it. I've been filled with bitterness, and the only solution to satisfy me has been the bitterness of wormwood. My teeth grind on gravel. I've never done that. My teeth have been broken in my mouth because I'm grinding them on stone. And I'm cowering in ashes looking for relief that doesn't come. My soul is bereft of peace. There's no peace. Not only that, I've forgotten what happiness is even like. I can't even recall what it's like to smile spontaneously or to laugh or to find joy in the things of life. And so I say, this is my conclusion, my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. I was His servant. I was bearing it all. But now I'm broken. I've got nothing left in the tank. I have no strength, no endurance. I have no hope. My soul continues to remember this. Bowed down within me. It's a picture of utter despair and discouragement. Regardless of where you fall into that category, you have to, into those categories, you know somebody who's experiencing this. You may have experienced it at, at some point in your life. 
You may be experiencing it right now. You may be terrified that you're going to experience it in the future. None of that matters. This is the harsh reality of life. And this prophet is facing all of that. You should see in this. This is what we do in studying the Scripture. This isn't a trite statement of, I had it rough and then I remembered. No, no, look at the words that were carefully chosen to express his grief and his misery, his pain and his suffering. And then in verse 21, what does he say? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The prophet stops and preaches to himself in the middle of the pain and says, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. He doesn't go through all this and then say, I just need to get over it. God is good. No, no. He actually states specific truths. He doesn't just say, oh, i got to get over this because God is good, or God is in this, or God's trying to teach me something. No, 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 that won't get it done. If you do that, you'll have nothing to hold on to. Nothing to hold on to. He says very specifically, this is what I call to mind. This is what I call to mind. The steadfast love of God never ceases. Even when I don't feel it, even when it isn't there for me in the immediate where I, I, I think it's left me, I cannot see it, I cannot feel it, I cannot hear it. It is ceaseless. It's the reality. And so what the lamenter is doing is expressing his anguish to God and coming to the realization that God's love is steadfast and it never ceases. And every day I wake up, I'm reminded that his mercies are new. When you wake up in the morning, I remember there was a gentleman working at a hotel in Philadelphia that we used to attend this conference, and I used to go to see him. He worked in the lobby at at the Marriott Hotel in Philadelphia, and I'd say, how you doing today, Captain Billy? He said, "Any, any day on this side of the dirt's a good day. I woke up, no roots in my face, brother. Good day. I said, well, you know, if we wake up and there are roots in our face, that's bad theology because absent from the body is present with the Lord. But we, we, we got through that. But the reality is this. He took every day as a gift from the Lord. Every day is a demonstration of God's new mercies. And the prophet is saying, hey, look, I, every morning I see that his mercies are new and that they never come to an end. They're new every morning, and his faithfulness is great. He does not, does not forsake me. You know, it's so easy in the context. We sing the hymn all the time, and we, the verse is on the seal, and it's in our literature. This is the university verse. Great is thy faithfulness. It's so easy to see it as a bumper sticker or something we carry around in our cart or wrote inside the leaf of our Bible. But it's not just that. It's an eternal truth with eternal significance and practical impact. In the midst of despair, remind yourself of this. God is faithful and His faithfulness is great. We preach to ourselves and we do it with intention. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. I don't think I've shared this illustration in here before. If I have, forgive me. But we had a vice president and a friend who worked here a number of years ago who was stricken with a very aggressive and sudden form of cancer. Uh, She went into the hospital, and uh, they diagnosed her with an aggressive form of cancer, and she went to be with the Lord two weeks later on Easter morning. 
She was sitting in the hospital, laying in the hospital, a few days before she died. The drugs that they had given her had so burned her throat and her mouth that she couldn't swallow, she couldn't breathe, she couldn't talk without great pain. And she was sitting there one day, suffering to this extent, tried to take a drink of water and said, Jesus, I just need a blessing. And then she said, wait a minute. Jesus is my blessing. Listen, that is biblical wisdom in the midst of great suffering. We say, Jesus, give me hope. God, give me hope. The prophet in Lamentation says, no, the Lord is your portion, and He is your hope. What you want, what I want, is circumstantial relief. Get me out of this. If you just gave me a sign, no, no, I'm your portion. If you just gave me relief, no, no, I'm your portion. If you just gave me a reason to hope, no, no, I am your hope. This is what the prophet is preaching to himself in the midst of his suffering. What we preach to ourselves, when we do it, and why we do it matters, brothers and sisters. Don't settle for trite platitudes, self-help drivel, or capitulation to a cultural romanticization of despair and despondency. Drive for honesty and truth. Realign yourself with God's Word. In the midst of your pain and despair and discouragement, you must drive for truth and honesty. The prophet, like the psalmist, declares with all honesty a sense of feeling forsaken, left alone, left for dead, despondent, downtrodden, hopeless. But by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they declare the truths that He has never forsaken us or left us. That He will never forsake us or leave us. That He is with us even to the ends of the age. That we are to praise Him and to rejoice regardless of our circumstances. Not to whistle through the graveyard, but to see through it to the other side where there is life and hope and love and mercy. You have to drive yourself to honesty and truth. It's not enough to preach to yourself platitudes and self-help drivel. Stop it if you're doing it. It will not help. It might numb you. It might give you temporary relief, but there is no hope in that stuff. You must avoid the temptation to want comfort rather than truth. C.S. Lewis wrote, that it's a choice we have to carefully, carefully take on. Because what we seek, truth or comfort, matters. He said, in the end, if we seek comfort rather than truth, we will have neither. But if we seek truth rather than comfort, in the end, we get both. We get both. And so this is what we must do. We have to seek truth rather than comfort because in the end, that's what gives us both. Read the Psalms. Read the Proverbs. Read the Prophets. Read the New Testament. Read what the Apostles went through. Be in the Word. Get truth and honesty in there. Hold fast to it and rehearse it. The Prophet didn't pull this out of midair. He didn't look it up on his phone. It was in there. So in the midst of his suffering, he knew this eternal truth. God's steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
His faithfulness is great, and He is our portion and our hope. It was already in there. It was already in there. You know, just because we study at a place that requires of you 30 hours of Bible and theology does not mean that you have it in there. We've set the table, but you must eat. It's the only way. Regardless of which of those categories you fall into, you have to see a way through that is tied to the Scripture, to the Gospel, and to Jesus Christ. Paul does this for us in Romans chapter 5. It's not just a doctrinal treatise. He's writing to Christians in Rome who are experiencing real struggles and suffering and cultural challenges. I love the book of Romans because I think that of all the people in Scripture, we probably are in the, the most similar context. It said, it said in, in, in ancient times, all roads lead to Rome. It was the cultural epicenter of the world. And Paul was writing to those Christians not just to outline doctrinal truths that could be recorded for centuries and centuries, but to speak to a church that was swimming in a cultural swamp about what it means to hold fast their faith and to believe these things that are true no matter what, to not be dissuaded or persuaded by the world around them. He's writing to them, and what does he say? In chapter 5, verse 1, this great passage on justification, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a great theological reality. Theologians have been dealing with this forever. Look, we've been justified by faith, and as a result of that, right, we've obtained access by faith into His grace, but it's grace in which we stand. It's, it means now in this world, this is grace in which you can stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God regardless of your circumstances. You know what is to come. And in verse 3 he says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Whoa, that's a turn. We're talking about the, the, the doctrine of being justified by faith. Whoa, but that has an implication for this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Read that over and over and over. There may not be a more countercultural statement that you could pour over than that one. Wait a second, wait a second. Are you serious? Rejoice in our sufferings? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Rejoice in our sufferings? And folks, we're not talking about they were made fun of. We're talking about they were being burned alive. Rejoice in our sufferings? They're, 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 they're sacrificing children. Rejoice in our sufferings? We've been socially outcast and economically cut off. Rejoice in our sufferings? Know that suffering produces endurance? Who wants that? Do you know what it means when you get endurance? It means you have to what? Endure. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And much more, how much more countercultural 
could the Apostle Paul be than that? Yet this is the way. And look, the beauty of it being here in Romans 5 is it's tied to God's love made known to us through Jesus Christ. What does the rest of the passage say? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since there we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life? This is not an afterthought about the afterlife. This is about how to cope now. We remember that we've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. We've been given life. Why would we choose to act as though that is not true? And this is the context in which he says rejoice in your sufferings. Not that it will be all be made better. Listen, there are preachers out there who will tell you you follow Jesus, you get it all. It wasn't true in the first century, and it's not true now. If you follow Jesus, you should be, as we sang at the beginning of chapel, ready to lose it all. There are preachers who will tell you, if you follow Jesus, nothing can touch you. But they hung Peter upside down on a cross. And they sent Stephen to his death by stoning They tell you, if you follow Jesus, you'll be an example to the world because you'll be healthier and wealthier and better off than your unsaved counterparts. But David said, how long will the wicked prosper? Adjust your lens. And understand this, all of that is fleeting. What matters in this life is what we've already been given in and through Jesus Christ. And in that alone, our worth is found. I can think of no better remedy for our feeling discouraged and despairing than that. Regardless of your disposition or your physiological makeup, it may be your burden to bear for the rest of your life, but preach to yourself. It may be it will never get better and never get easier. Don't stop preaching to yourself. God's grace is sufficient. Look at the Apostle Paul. Three times he asked for that thorn to be removed from his flesh. Why would you do this to me? Think how much better I could preach in all the places I could go if you just got rid of this thorn. Three times I asked. I heard a preacher the other day that said if you ask three times, God will give it. Not to Paul, he didn't. In fact, at the end of it, he did give Paul what he needed. But it wasn't relief. It was grace. It was grace. This is the reality. The Christian faith is not a coping mechanism. It's not a pain pill or a placebo. It's an antidote, brothers and sisters. It doesn't guarantee us we'll escape despair or discouragement, but it does mean that all is not lost and that we can think about life ourselves and our circumstances differently. And in this alone is true comfort. Do not overlook the power of preaching to yourself. All the other things matter. Prayer, encouragement to one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, bearing one another's burdens, seeking help, 
seeking those that are wiser with more perspective, but don't drop this one off the list because of those. Preach to yourselves the truth of God's Word. It has practical and eternal implications. God said about His Word, it shall not return void. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do indeed thank You for Your goodness and grace and for Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would be at work in us to accomplish Your purposes. Father, for those in this room who are in denial, who have disconnected from reality and are not dealing with the real struggles of life, we ask that You would soften their hearts. Soften their hearts for those around them. Soften their hearts for You. Father, for those in the room who are too often have identified themselves and allowed their personalities to be shaped by discouragement and despair, lift their eyes heavenward. Give them the strength and grace to preach to themselves that they might rejoice in their sufferings because You are their God. Father, for those who are caught by the ankles, for those who can't get free, who are suffocating under the issues of despair and discouragement, even depression, give them grace to seek help, strengthen them according to their days, and even in the midst of that, give them grace to preach to themselves the truths of Your Word. Father, drive us to our knees before You that we might think biblically about the disciplines of mind and heart, that we might submit ourselves to Your Word and to Your way, that we might rejoice in all things, that we might develop endurance that produces character and character that produces hope. And above all, God, keep our eyes on You and Your Son, Jesus. Give us faith to trust in the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And give us faith to trust that you are our portion and our hope. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless.